0: You're listening to the Wild Voices Project. And today, I'm in conversation with Kate Bradbury, wildlife gardener and writer. Um, So I always start by asking people the same question, which is, were nature and wildlife an important part of your childhood and growing up for you? No. No? No. Okay. Were they notable by their absence? Um...
1: I don't really know. <clears throat> I think... I think, for, you know, when I... Obviously, on Twitter, and, you know, I've read a lot of books... Um, by naturalists who had these really idyllic childhoods in the country, and, you know, they went out with their parents, and, you know, and Patrick Barkham's father is a very famous lepidopterist, and, um, you know, Dave Goulson, um his parents, I think they were scientists, or... But, um, no, I grew up in the suburbs in um, Solihull, which is nine miles uh, south of Birmingham, metropolitan borough, nine miles south of Birmingham, and my parents didn't really encourage that much of an interest in the natural world. Um we did have a bird box and my dad did one day lift up the bird box and show me the little blue baby blue tits inside and that was that was pretty magical. Um but no, I would say there wasn't this huge there wasn't this huge um connection with the natural world. I think the one thing that I did have and this is something that I'm trying to sort of convey in my book at the moment is that we had a very large garden mm. and um, my um, my dad did the vegetable patch at the back and my mum did the ornamental stuff at, at the front of the garden and um, and the back was quite wild and we'd have these amazing summers these summer evenings where my dad um, he still is obsessed with lighting bonfires um, more than anything else really and we would have the, you know, I'd be sort of three years old, and, and we would have a bonfire in the back of the garden. And um, you know, those really wonderful warm summer evenings, and you're just small, and and you're gathering sticks and allowed to put them on the fire as mm. long as you stay away from it, um, you know, and keep a safe distance. Um, and so I did have this kind of. There was a wilderness there, but it was a, it was a, it was, a, it, was a, it was a certain type of wilderness that isn't. Perhaps what other people can relate to. Um, And then my parents got divorced and my dad moved out. Um, But we didn't, my mum and my sisters and I didn't leave that house for a further seven years. And so what happened was that vegetable patch that my dad managed Mm -hmm. just became this amazing um, jungle. Um and I, I could get lost in it. You know, eventually my mum wouldn't let me go to the back of the garden because she couldn't see me. Um <laughs> but, you know, you know, the grass was higher than I was, it was huge amounts of um cow parsley and but I never I never really noticed the birds. I never really you know, it I never found snakes, I never found birds, I um I used to make mud pies, I found worms, um were lots of spiders but I never remember having this connection this affinity with with the natural world Mm. yes I played in it and I was outside all the time but I suppose perhaps without the direction of parents or anyone else there wasn't really I didn't really notice things which is a shame really a little bit with my grandmother I first had a cuckoo when I was out walking with my grandmother she lived in the country um but I would say overall, no, there wasn't this huge connection. Um, so I, had, I, I suppose I've had an atypical introduction to the to the natural world.
0: Mm. You've just sparked a memory for me, actually, which is that I always used to, my favourite bit of our garden at home always used to be the bit where my parents couldn't see me. Yeah. And where it was wildest, where I could go and, like, yeah. you know, actually let my imagination run free without any parental oversight.
1: Yes. And I think kids don't have that anymore, which is a tragedy. And I I worry about the future of the world um, run by people who didn't have wild childhoods, who were sort of hemmed in and and had to constantly be kept an eye on. Um, But, yes, there was the garden. I suppose the garden is always my, my wilderness, really. Something I've always sort of strived to return to so I suppose I suppose yeah I don't know it's really hard to describe I suppose it's yeah difficult one really
0: so how was it you came to wildlife or to gardening whichever way around it was first
1: gardening was from birth gardening was the thing that I did Um, there's photos of me aged one just in the mud, in a nappy um, (laughs) just doing things I've always done it, it's always been in me Um, and you know, when I was about 18 my mum sort of gave me this very profound speech where she said, you know I always knew you'd work with the soil Um, and um, yeah, so that's always been in me I've always been a gardener I've always, um, I had my first so when we moved um, after my mum and my sister and I moved to a small house with a small garden Um, when I was 11, I think 10 or 11 um, there was a little bit of garden that my mum there was an apple tree and there was this tiny patch under the apple tree that was really useless and full of bindweed and my mum said you can have that as a vegetable patch if you want Um, after I sort of begged her to let me have a vegetable patch and so I I started growing my own veg when I was 11 Um, and that did wane a little as I developed teenage interests Um, but something I got back to very quickly at university all my friends used to take the piss out of me because I had so many houseplants in my little hall um, in my little room and then everyone else whose houseplants were dying they'd bring them to me and I would make them live again Um, (laughs) and yeah it was yeah, that's always been there um, and you know I got my first allotment when I was twenty two and I was living in Manchester and yeah. I would go out night clubbing and then everybody else would go home or go on to another party, and I' would <laughs> just go to my allotment um you know barely able to talk <laughs> here i was among among my natural world so so for me, gardening has always been my my connection with the natural world um whether I was aware of it or not and I think I wasn't really aware of it until my mid-twenties which was when um, the sort of big my big sort of light bulb wildlife moment was when um, my girlfriend at the time uh, we were living in Manchester and she was living in a flat with her friend Johnny and it was all very post-student days Um, so we were sort of mid-twenties didn't really know what we were doing or where we were going in our lives, and Johnny, there was a duvet. There was a duvet um, tucked behind a sofa for when people stayed over, and they could just pull the duvet over and, and crash on the sofa. And uh, for some reason, it's not of mould. I think there was a damp wall <laughs> next to the sofa, and so being the responsible mid twenties post student that Johnny was, he threw the duvet out into the backyard. And left it there. Um, and then, sort of, I don't know. Three months later, um, Julie, my ex's housemate—not housemate, um, uh, housemate landlord—phoned her up and said, "If you don't get rid of that bumblebee nest, I will." And we were like, "What bumblebee nest?" And we went into the yard, and sure enough, there was um, a colony of red-tailed bumblebees nesting in this old duvet. Um, and so we didn't know what to do. And literally, that was 2006, literally the week before Bumblebee Conservation Trust had launched and had taken out this front page spread in The Independent. And I I, rem- I remember where I was when I saw that front page. And um, I've always been a bit soft. So I've always been a bit, like, trying to save things. So I'd find worms that birds had... Half eaten, and I try and clean them up, and, and restore them, and, and you know give them their lives back, and um, the rescue centre just outside Manchester must have hated me because I was always taking feral pigeons there that had been <laughs> run over. Um, so I've always had that in me, that sort of wanting, that sort of wanting to help, that sort of desire to make things better, I suppose. Um, and and so anyway, I um, I remember seeing the front page on the Independent, um, and I. In the back of my mind, I thought, oh, I wonder what I can do to help the bees. Because it hadn't really really occurred to me, even though I had an allotment, and even though I'd always been a gardener, I'd never really noticed bees before. Um, Or I had, but I'd taken them for granted. And so there was this bumblebee nest. And I emailed, I sort of googled bumblebee conservation trust, and the internet was a bit, it wasn't even that good then, you know, even, even 10 years ago. And they had this landing page, which was basically just this guy's email address, Ben Darville, who's now a friend of mine. And so I just emailed him and said, we've got this bumblebee nest in the duvet, what do we do? The landlord doesn't want to keep it there. And the neighbours have complained. And he told me what to do. And he said, um, take a shoebox. Fill it with moss and grass, dried moss and grass. Make sure there's two entrance holes. Cut Mm. them if you need to, or a lot of boxes already have a hole in. But tape them over. And then at night time, when all the bees have gone back to the nest, and they don't fly at night because it's dark, cut the nest out of the duvet. Because it still had a duvet cover on, so it was very easy. Yeah. And then place it in the nest. Close the box. Take it to your allotment leave it there and the next morning go back and take the tapes off the entrance holes and that's it it's fine so we did and we called it Operation Bumblebee (laughs) and we did it at midnight on a Wednesday evening and I completely took Ben's word um, that they wouldn't sting me because it was dark so I just wore jeans and a t-shirt and my girlfriend wore um, she sort of fashioned this (laughs) this beekeeper's outfit out of of some neck curtains, Um, which was hilarious. And yes, bumblebees don't fly in the dark, but if you shine a torch on the nest, then they do, and they sting you in the face. (laughs) That's
0: what you've learned. Which I've learned. (laughs)
1: Um, And so we moved this nest, and I didn't know what they were, I didn't know what they did, I didn't know anything about them. I just did what Ben told me to do and I took them to my allotment and then the next morning I cycled to my allotment before work and I took the little bits of tape off and then I went to work and then after work I cycled to my allotment again and I sat and I watched them and that was that. That That was the rest of my summer. I just sat and watched the bees. My allotment went to Rack and Ruin. Um, I barely got any crops. I I didn't do any weeding. I just used to go down and sit and watch the bees. Um, And... I remember getting quite distressed because so red tail I've since learned that red tail bumblebees the, 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 the queen and the workers are black with a red tail beautiful bees um, and they're, 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 their hair is, is, is really it's like a mole it's like velvet it's like crushed velvet it's beautiful but the males have a, a white band um, on, their, on their thorax or abdomen not quite sure mm. I think on their thorax um, so my, to my untrained eye I thought there were different species and I thought oh my god no these other bees were invading the <laughs> bees nest um, and then I was noticed a lot of dead bees around the nest and I thought like, what's that Why, what have I done to these bees and then I saw what I now know was a daughter queen a mated daughter queen digging into the soil mm. so um, the, the, the bumblebee the, the queen the original queen who founded the nest she lays eggs which turn into workers for most of the season. And then towards the end of the season, she starts laying eggs that turn into males and daughter queens. And then they go out and mate with males and daughter queens mother nests. And um, and then the daughter queens, the males die, the workers die, the founding queen dies, and the daughter queens go into hibernation. And then they have this amazing, amazing journey of just hiding in the soil for six months um, before they emerge in, in spring to found nests of their own. And I witnessed a daughter queen, a mated daughter queen, digging herself into the soil next to the nest, pretty much pretty much immediately next to the nest, because I was just sitting on my little camping stool watching them. Um, but I thought she was committing suicide or something. I, d- I didn't really know what she was doing. And I thought, I've driven these bees suicide, they've, they've been attacked by bees from another nest, this one's trying to kill herself um, and I was really depressed and then about two weeks later everything went quiet and the nest died and I was so upset that I just put the nest on the compost heap um, and, um, and bought a book on bumblebees, that's what I did <laughs> because I thought, I thought I've i ruined these bees lives yeah. so what I need to do now is I need to dedicate my life to um, educating other people about bumblebees So that I can put something back. Because I felt so guilty at having not succeeded. And so I bought a book on bumblebees. Where I (laughs) learned that the red-tailed bumblebee male has a yellow band on its thorax. Um, And then I eventually... And it wasn't for about four years actually. That I learned about the daughter queens digging themselves into the soil. So I I spent a good four years... Writing, because then I got a job in, at Grow Your Own Magazine. So then I got my first, around this time was when I first started writing gardening articles for, yeah. for magazines. okay. And then I got a job for Grow Your Own Magazine, which is based in Colchester. Um, and just pushed every month we'd have planning meetings. With, Can I write something about bumblebees? Um, and eventually I did get an article about bumblebees. And I felt, I felt somehow that, that you know I felt better for having killed these bees. Um yeah, and it wasn't until about four years later that I realised that I hadn't killed the bees, it had been an enormous success and, and probably, hopefully, their um their offspring are still or well, their progeny is are still going. Sort of ten years later, in that allotment in Manchester. Um so that was my light bulb moment and it was quite it was quite big really. Yeah. Um and then I got a job on Gardeners Well magazine and again pushed and pushed and pushed to have um, articles about bumblebees, to have bee-friendly plants given away in the magazine, um, and then they made me wildlife editor, which was lovely. And so suddenly my bumblebee world expanded considerably, and yeah. and I was, I was noticing. Well, not noticing. I'd already no- I, you know, I'd always noticed to a degree, but not known, not ever thought. Oh, I wonder what that butterfly was. I will go out and find a book. You know, there were never any books, any natural history books when I was a kid. I think there was maybe one bird book, um, but it was on a shelf that I couldn't access. You know, there was no. This was this was, for me, it was completely new. It was like okay, there's a world out there that I have no idea it really existed. I was perhaps on the periphery of it. Um, there's books on butterflies, so you know, suddenly, suddenly everything just just grew. Yeah. Um, and that was wonderful. And, and now, sort of ten years later, from that initial moment, I'm sort of a bit staggered, really, that I've written a book about gardening for wildlife, because it wasn't that long ago where I didn't know have a clue about it, really.
0: <laughs> it provides me hope for my own uh, yeah. <laughs> very basic gardening skills. Yeah. So... um I was actually, I was reading Barbara Kingsolver yesterday. Oh, right. And one of her essays in her collection is about her daughter, Lily, who at the age of five gets her own chickens. Oh. And when she gets them, she goes and tells her grandmother, she's like, they're my own chickens. And that really, like by pure coincidence, that really reminds me about what you said about having your own patch under the apple tree. Mm. And do you think that you were driven by that same kind of sense of ownership when you when you went and chose to spend time at your allotment rather than going out night clubbing, like that's you know I feel the same. Like I would rather go and look for owls or foxes than have gone out night clubbing at uni. Like, oh, but it's I quite an went unusual choice. I
1: just went after night clubbing. Oh, I see. That was the bed. after party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like right. Okay. See you later. Um, I don't know. Actually, I suppose I think the thing with me is that gardening has always been such a huge part of me mm. that I've never been able to suppress and I did try to suppress it actually when I was at university because and school because I was a bit embarrassed you know um because no one else was into that and 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 it was very geeky and very weird and I just wanted to fit in you know when you're a teenager you just want to fit in and be the same as everyone else and I I wasn't I had this huge love of gardening um and I would you know it's a sign of the times really but I was much I was much happier about being gay than I was about being a gardener. Um, and so that that sort of came later. So ownership, I don't I don't really know. It's just something that I've always done. And, and, you know, even now, you know, I will sneak off. And I don't even know that I'm sneaking off. And I will sneak off and spend four hours in the garden and, and it will <laughs> just go like that. And, you know, and my girlfriend and will say, where have you been? And, oh, sorry. Um, and I used to go to my allotment and not take my phone. Mm. Um, so that people couldn't find me because I wanted to be left I just wanted to be in my world Um, and it's always been my world and um, you know the same as when I was a kid really even though I didn't know what I was doing I was always just there with a trowel just you know knocking seeds into the ground or just doing something even though it wasn't my patch I was just always just doing little things in the garden Um, so yeah, I don't know if it's about ownership. It's just something that's just there. I suppose it's just like anything that, that people... If you have it in you and you and you follow your passion and you, and you love it, you just can't help but do it. It's just... It's like a magnet. Mm. Um, and, you know, I will... You know, I'm lucky I'm a freelance journalist. I write about what I love, mostly. Um, and I will often get up early... If I've got to be somewhere, I will get up early so I can have an hour in the garden before I go, mm. or I will um get up early and do all my work so I can be finished by three so I can spend the rest of the day in the garden um it rules me it does it it's it's um I won't go on holiday in summer um I've just been offered three weeks' work working away from home, and I turned it down because because of my tomatoes and because I want to be you know in my garden in my special place um so I suppose you could say that was ownership I don't know what it is really Love, I suppose
0: yeah I think it is I think I think that's what drives me just to get outside and try and find wildlife and always has but I think there are spin-off benefits as well so if my parents broke up mm. when I was a little bit older than the new you when yours did but it also provided me with a great sense of comfort to be able to go and do yes. that. That was really important to yes. me. And in fact, that was happening at a time when I'd kind of, like yourself, put my interest in wildlife to one side because mm. I was a teenager and yeah. you know it wasn't necessarily something that my friends understood. But actually I went back to it quite strongly at the time that mm. that was happening because it provided a great you know sense of comfort and a bit of control to me as well.
1: Yes, and it, I think it reinforces who you are. Mm. And I think at times of trauma... You kind of need that that sense of self. It's quite profound.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's important. So, um, so you started. You became wildlife editor of, of Gardeners Bre- World, World magazine. Yes. Um, and then, since then, it just you you're just prolific, basically, particularly in terms of your writing. For well, I. Like, um, Oh, magazines that, and newspapers.
1: I don't know. I suppose I think the thing I think the thing with 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 writing about wildlife is that I started doing it at a time when um, not that many people were doing it. Mm. Or other people were doing it, but not necessarily getting it right. So you know, there's there's quite a lot of wildlife guiding advice out there that's not quite right. And I think I think I just managed to. Um, fill a niche that hadn 't yet been filled, and I think to be honest now it has it has been filled. There were loads of really good um wildlife gardening writers out there um you know and um but I remember when I first joined Twitter, I joined twitter in two thousand and nine um and you know i'd I was absolutely obsessed with bumblebees um and people noticed um and I think that 's how I got. Articles in The Guardian and The Telegraph. I think it was because suddenly there was this, there was this garden writer who was going on about bees. And I don't know, it, fe- it felt like, I mean, you know, other people might disagree, but it felt like I was filling in a niche. It felt like no one else was doing that. Hmm. Um, you know, there was this sort of, you know, a lot of garden writers were on Twitter, and um, at one point I was the one that represented wildlife um now i don't know if i've influenced other people to take notice of wildlife and and now suddenly you know they are also writing about wildlife or if it just happened that you know there's just a general i feel like there's a general um surge of interest in in wildlife gardening um and i don't know how influential i've been in that i you know I, i've been inclined to say i'm not really but um um you know i think I think it's really wonderful that that more people are taking an interest and more people are experts and um I've noticed now as well that um you know I I, I was sort of there writing about bees on Twitter sort of in 2009 um and bumblebees are really quite easy to identify really and I've really struggled with solitary bees ever since and now there are so many people who are just so good at identifying solitary <laughs> bees, um, and um, they've sort of taken over. Really, not taken over, but they know more, hmm. and and that's and that's really lovely. And and now I go to them and I'm like, what's this bee? Um, so so yeah. So it's um, I can't remember the question.
0: Well, well I think um, I think one of the so the story about you trying to take care of those red-tailed bumblebees, mm. and then thinking that you messed it up, and then going and wanting to learn everything you could about them. Yes. Is, that really mirrors, for me, something that you write about in some of your articles, which is about doing wildlife gardening in a way that is holistic, and where what you create in your garden is a functioning habitat, not just putting out one food plant that benefits one species, but thinking about it in a complex way. Yes. Could I you think... say a little bit more about <clears throat> that?
1: I think... I think my thing about wildlife gardening is that it's all very well to put these food plants and habitats in. But what I really try to encourage and what I really love doing is watching the wildlife.
0: Mm. So
1: you create the habitats and it's as much for yourself as it is for the wildlife. And, and so I'm a huge fan, you know, where I've, in my garden, I've created this, this wildlife garden, which is still in its infancy, but I have put my seating area next to the pond because my favourite thing on a hot summer's day is to turn my phone off so no one can get hold of me and sit in front of my pond and I look at the little snails and I look at the mating damselflies and I find rat-tailed maggots and, you know, I watch house sparrows bathing in there and it's... For me, it's it's not... it's It goes beyond being rewarded for having created the habitat by knowing that you're doing something good. Mm. It's... it it reaches something inside me that's just so deep and so profound. I just just love it and I want other people to experience that. And I don't know if it's just me or if, you know, I can sort of unlock that love, I suppose, um, with other people. But, yeah, I, you know, I believe in, you know, Yes, let's help the bees, because the bees really need help. Um and if we plant that plant there, then the bees will come and and they will feed on it. But I feel that that's almost missing the point a little, because you can plant a lavender for a bee, but if you don't put a chair next to the lavender, then you're not gonna know about the bees that come and visit the lavender. And if you don't know the bees that are coming to visit the lavender, then you won't know which bees suddenly stop coming to visit the lavender and if we don't know what we've got we won't care for it and I feel that planting lavender is not enough we need to we need to engage we need to get to know our wildlife we need to get the bird books we need to put the binoculars on the window ledge and so when we see a bird that we don't recognize we we look at the bird we study the bird we look at the bird in the book we tell our friends I had a nut hatch on my bird feeder for the first time and then you know and then your friends are jealous and and then they tried to get a nut hatch on their bird feeder. I just we, we need to go beyond just planting food plants. We need to create habitats, we need to watch the habitats, we need to see what's there. And we need to love it. And we need to learn to love it, and we need to learn to love the caterpillars. Well a huge thing that I write about um, in gardening magazines is. You know caterpillars caterpillars and aphids because so many gardeners i, I don't i don't know if even gardeners actually instinctively hate god gar- um, caterpillars and aphids or if we've just been told to hate c- caterpillars and aphids um but they are the bottom of the food chain mm. everything else relies on them we wouldn't have blue ticks without caterpillars we wouldn't have swifts without aphids um you know, we have to look at the bigger picture, um, and, yeah, I suppose that's, that's, that's where I'm coming from with, with, with my wildlife gardening articles, um, as much as possible, Is that I try to just go that step further, and just say, you know, look, caterpillars are great, um, and then I'm, you know, I, um, I've actually went looking for caterpillars on the nettles yesterday and um, couldn't find any. But it's nearly time and I will be taking some and keeping them in my kitchen and feeding them every day and writing about it on Twitter and hoping that other people do because caterpillars are brilliant and they turn into butterflies and they're not doing very well.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: Um,
0: and that's something I want to come back to actually but I was going to ask the stuff about getting people to understand what's in their garden and then love it. That touches on, um, an area that I wanted to ask you about, which is what, what do you feel is the connection between our own gardens and the wider UK landscape and countryside? And what's the connection between getting to know the wildlife in your back garden and caring for it and the very big scale systemic environmental problems that we face as a country and indeed as a planet
1: wow okay um <laughs> well first of all i think gardeners tend to be and not always tend to be very protective over their little patch of land so if um if gardeners can be encouraged to garden for wildlife which most of the time isn't hard because most gardeners love the birds and if you love the birds then you can love other things as well you know and you can notice things that are there um and so and so we are stewards of our land um, and we're very protective over it and we're very protective over our birds, you know, in the hedges. Mostly, I think, some people are just horrible about the wildlife in their gardens, um, but I, I would say most people are not. And I think that connects to the wider landscape because if we can see what's in our gardens and if we can understand that what's coming into our gardens is often coming into our gardens because it no longer has sufficient habitat outside our gardens, then that's one step in knowing that our landscape um, is, I won't go as far as to say ruined, but um, at risk, shall we say, by intensive methods of agriculture. Um, I cycled the Downs Way, the South Downs Way a few years ago, mm. from Eastbourne to Hampshire and just Didn't hear any birds in May, no yeah. birds in May, you know because it's so intensively managed um and and so and so yes, there is a huge connection between between what we what we do in our gardens and what we do elsewhere and and knowing you know if we have a greater connection with with what lives in our gardens, then we're going to understand what's going on outside, hopefully. And then, perhaps be more inclined to buy organic food, you know it's all very well to create habitats of wildlife in your garden but but bats need to eat insects outside your garden, and a huge thing you can do for them is to just buy organic food um and the same for bees, you know organic rapeseed oil um um and I know that you know organic food is more expensive and and not everyone can afford that luxury but If we can, then I would urge people to do that. Um, So I think it gives you a greater understanding of what's going on outside, Mm -hmm. which is important. And so in a British context, you know, we know that starlings are declining. Or I hope we know starlings are declining because of um, intensive methods of agriculture probably but I don't think it's been um, confirmed yet scientifically, but probably due to a cocktail of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides in the soil, which is um, reducing populations of um, daddy long-legs larvae, crane fly larvae, leather jackets, um, which they eat. And so maybe we could not get upset about leather jackets in our lawns. Maybe. Maybe we could create... Those havens, those little organic havens where starlings can come in and eat our leather jacket larvae in safety. Um, so yes, it is hugely important. The more gardeners learn about wildlife gardening, the more we can maybe offset what's going on in um, our rural communities in, in agriculture. And then in the wider world, yeah. It's all relative, isn't it? You know, I've just come back from Borneo, which is horrendous.
0: Yeah, I lived there for a year. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think Megan said, actually. Yes. Um, you know, and I was in... Um, which which area were you in? I
0: was in central Kalimantan.
1: Okay. Wow. I was in... Um... Uh... Bottom left bit, the um, the national park. Oh, rainbow. Tanjung Puting. Tanjung Puting, yeah, which is supposed to be the most untouched area of Kalimantan. Yeah, I've been. And I <laughs> could hear chainsaws.
0: Yeah, well, there are beautiful, pristine kind of islands of forest in in amongst, in amongst seas of oil palm. Right, mm. I mean, we drove there from. So the forest that I was in was the largest remaining peat swamp forest on Borneo. Yeah. And we drove to Puting National Park. It's about a 12, 13 hour drive. Yeah. And it's, it's until just, you get to the national I park, know. it's just all part I of drove, the whole way.
1: I got, I got a bus from, um, not Puting. I flew to Pon, Pontianak. Yep, And I got a bus from Pontianak to um, just north of the Malaysian border. Beginning with a K. Uh,
0: anyway, no, I don't know.
1: It was a ten-hour bus journey. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was just pure, pure palm oil yeah. plantations and lorries with with, um. The 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 fruit. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I think generally, you know, so many people are starved of the natural world. So many people, you know, I was. I grew up in the suburbs with no um, no influence in the natural world at all you know one bird book mm. that was never looked at that was on a shelf that I couldn't access um, it was just by chance that I happened to love gardening and that I forced this interest in the natural world on myself and then in, in doing so you know on on my family and friends who think I'm a bit weird but it could have so easily not gone that way, you know, because none of my friends has this interest. You know, maybe it's because I had a bigger garden than they did, or maybe it's because my parents were divorced and, and you know, going into the garden was my way of, you know, not despairing, you know, or sort of looking after myself or, or whatever. Um, you know, and maybe if we hadn't found that bumblebee nest, I would just... I don't know what I would be doing. Um... And so so many people don't have those those chance encounters with wildlife that sets them on a completely different path. And you know, there's no you know, when my mum and dad were growing up, there was a wood nearby and they could just go and they were just kicked out at you know, nine in the morning and told to be back for lunchtime and they would go off and explore and they would go into the woods and they took the natural world for granted. And even though for some reason that never made an imprint on my parents that they were able to pass on to me, they still had that. And our generation, or my, my generation and, and, and their children, the next generation, they don't have that. But what we do have, a lot of us, are gardens and parks and, you know, in London. It's amazing what the London Wildlife Trust is doing. You know, all of these, um, you know, just little reserves, just here and there with this amazing um, array of wildlife. And, you know, going back to gardens, you know, we have this resource outside our back doors that a lot of people... Don't even go into mm. just to maybe let their dog out or put their washing out or throw a duvet into because it smells of mold um, <laughs> and you know if we can if I can not not I personally, but if we you know the people who are writing about gardening, the people who are really passionate about this can encourage people to just go out and just just look out the window, just clean your window and look, just stand at the kitchen when you're doing the washing up and just see what's outside and you know plant that lavender and then just go and sit by it if we can just encourage people who perhaps have never had this access to the natural world before to actually just go and engage with it then then there's hope i really do believe that and you know programs like spring watch are just incredible for that you know so many people watch spring watch and you know, it, it it fills me it fills me with a huge amount of hope that um, that all is not lost if if all of these people are on Twitter and Facebook and you know watching the TV every night for three weeks um, watching birds fledge and you know weasels eating what um, wasn't weasels was it weasels falling off stumps and stoats eating everything um, <laughs> you know that that gives me a huge amount of hope. Um, but I would yeah I think the way things are going our gardens are becoming smaller um, we are becoming busier as a as a nation um, we're becoming more distant from the natural world but at the same time we're also less happy I think if there can be a tidal shift to actually invest in happiness, invest in green spaces, invest in our gardens, invest in the spaces that we actually have, then then we can help protect species that are dying out and those that don't come into our gardens because their habitat requirements are too specialised. Maybe we can... Maybe the interest that we have sparked in, in, in gardening will... Be the impetus to protect the nightingale mm. which will never come into our gardens mm. um, so yeah, I mean you know I think that's how gardening connects to to everything else
0: I think you're really right um so I think what you said about uh about gardens in a joined-up way from you know purely from the amount of land they take up ecologically making a difference but then also i think what you said about sparking that interest and understanding in people and us being able to leverage that in a sense to take care of the wider environment is is really true and i think actually we talk a lot about rewilding the landscape But what you've touched on is the idea of rewilding ourselves and finding that connection. Um, And then we can, you know, hopefully use that. For some people, their garden will be enough, but hopefully for others, um, it'll it'll be a case that we can, exactly. To
1: to a greater, more wildlife enriched life. Yeah. No, because our gardens are brilliant, but, you know, if I want to go and hear nightingales, I have to get in the car. But I know that I can get in the car to go and hear nightingales because I know there's habitat down the road for the nightingales and, you know, I can help protect that habitat by, by being a member of uh, Sussex Wildlife Trust. Um, and, yes, I, I think our gardens are a stepping stone. I would, I would like our gardens to not be enough mm. because then we've failed. Yeah. I would like our gardens to be a stepping stone onto bigger, more amazing things like night jars. I was very excited by the night jars spoon Spoonwatch this year because um, I've been trying to hear one of my own now for a couple of years and failed. Um, and the nearest I got was I went to the Alcola Theatre in in um, Stoke Newington and the door sounded like a night jar. <laughs> um, and I said to my friend, that door sounds like a night jar. And he just said, What? Um, which is basically my life every day. That probably um, is about as close
0: as you get in Stoke Newington. Though. Yeah, well, completely <laughs> in Stoke
1: Newington, but but where I where I live now in Brighton, um, Sussex Wildlife Trusts, they do have they do have night jars, um, and I've been trying to hear one on my own, um, but I'm going to have to go to one of these night jar experiences mm. where I, I pay seven pounds to have someone show me where the night jar is. I kind of wanted to have an authentic experience, but. Um, It'll still be good.
0: I wanted to ask, actually, what, uh, what is one of or some of your favourite wildlife moments that oh. have come from this moment of connection with the bees?
1: Uh, right. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Um, uh, i tell you what. Some of the best wildlife experiences I've ever had have been diving. Really? Yeah. Um, so I went diving in the Galapagos. <laughs> uh, yeah that was pretty that was pretty amazing um, schools of hammerhead sharks wow you know the footage I keep talking about the war um, you know the footage of like warplanes coming in in the second world war and they're yeah. sort of just hovering and there's just loads of them and they're all just coming in and it's kind of really um, you know it's all black and white footage and it looks really scary all these warplanes It was like that, basically the the currents are so strong in certain areas that we were diving that you would dive down and then you'd cling onto a rock, they'd give you gloves and you'd cling onto a rock and wait and you'd go at feeding time (laughs) and all these hammerhead sharks, there must have been about 400 hammerhead sharks and they all just came in and we were just, just terrified but so excited because there was... Four hundred hammerhead sharks feeding around us, just doing their little kind of jerky head movements to eat a fish um and oh God, that was amazing amazing um oh yeah i I, I love diving, so no. I, I do quite a lot of um scuba diving uh away uh, I'm going to Belize at the end of the year. To, that's exciting to, yeah, I've yet to see a whale shark, but it's on my it's on my list okay. Um, and the and the um, I want to do the sardine run in South Africa as well, um, where all the sardines. No one knows why, millions and millions of sardines just travel north up um, the coast of South Africa, or the east coast of South Africa. Yeah. Uh, no one knows why, um, but they do, and because they do, um, you get loads of sharks. Probably see great white sharks there, and um, yeah, there's a diving birds coming in and. I wonder if you have to wear a helmet. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, just yeah, I've had some pretty incredible experiences. But then, you know, other times, oh my God, just opening the little hatch on my bee hotel last week and seeing um, through the viewing panel that leafcutter bees have started using my bee hotel for the first time. You know, that in itself as well is just absolutely magical. And I'm really upset because they've since abandoned the bee hotel and I wonder if it's because I was a bit excited and um you know kept opening the hatch and looking at them and just thought oh, this we're gonna go somewhere more quiet um but you know for for a fleeting moment for a day I had leaf cutters in my bee hotel for the first time yeah um and you know that was that was really magical there's just so there's so much magic there and it you know you don't know what's gonna make you really happy um, you just gotta choose your wildlife, I suppose. You know, I mean, waking up in the morning to realise that the butterflies you've been keeping in your kitchen are now flying around your kitchen, you know, <laughs> caterpillars. It's um, all of that. So I, sometimes I feel like, um, what's his name? Little. Um, My family and other animals. Oh, Gerald Darrell. Gerald Darrell. Yeah. Little Jerry Durrell. Um, yeah. Sometimes I feel like I'm just 10 years old and <laughs> just, you know, go around with keeping caterpillars in my kitchen and um, rat-tailed maggots. Oh, I'll tell you what it was a really good wildlife experience. Um, and this is a sort of thing I could never talk about in my gardening articles because people think I'm bonkers, but um, you've given me a voice. Um, I'm going to tell you about my dung beetles. Um, so I made a nettle feed to organically feed my plants. Yeah. And you're supposed to put a lid on it, and I didn't put a lid on it. And you're supposed to um, you're supposed to sort of decant it and dilute it and do whatever you do with it within about two weeks. And I didn't. I just left it there. I basically filled up a bucket with nettles and left it. Um, in the garden this is when I was living in, in London and had an absolutely tiny garden very very hemmed in and within, uh, within about four weeks this bucket had started to absolutely honk it was so it was so foul worse than the mattress or the duvet well, oh my god it, smelled, it actually smelled shit it really did and it wasn't just me that thought it smelled shit because suddenly there were dung flies mating all over it which were fascinating I love dung flies they're so cool and, um, and then there was rat-tailed maggots, massive ones. So I actually having a really good time in there. And then one day I came home from work, and there was a dung beetle in my um, um, in my little pot of nettle shit in my garden. And um, oh God, it was wonderful. And I'd never seen a dung beetle before, because I grew up in Birmingham, and I was living in London, you know. Um, and, and there it was a dung beetle, and I just put it on my arm. And I filmed it just crawling up and down my arm. (laughs) And um, I was so excited. Um, So that was a really magical wildlife moment. And it was just a surprise. Living in the middle of Hackney, you know, my garden then was... um, Again, it had been paved over. It was a purpose-built block of flats um, with a paved-over garden. I took up the paving stones. I turned it into a garden. I planted shrubs. I planted... Beef friendly plants it was really shady nothing grew it was a bit of a nightmare Um, and yet I persevered and I got a dumb beetle Um, you know and that you know very different to diving with hammerhead sharks in the Galapagos but oh my god it was amazing
0: but that's that thing isn't it it's kind of both scales, the huge, the the global migration and the tiny. And I think magic is a really important word as well in a couple of my it other really conversations. Is. It feels like magic when something completely unexpected happens, even in your own your own backyard. Yeah. <laughs> I could probably go on trading wildlife stories all day. <laughs> um <Go on. laughs> and I've got so many questions, but I want to um so I've got a couple that I really wanted to ask. I wanted to ask what the what your hopes are for the future of your work. There's one of your articles where you write quite quite powerfully about your dream of one day buying a field and turning it into a wildflower meadow. Oh yeah, that was is, a while ago. Is that still among your your kind of hopes it's for the future? probably
1: never gonna happen. <laughs> um yeah, that'd be amazing. Um I'd love to have loads of land. I, you know oh. Yeah, I'd love to have loads of land, and with that land, I would rewild all but the bit I was living on, um, and and then spend my days, um, you know, bowling around with my binoculars, um, getting really excited about things. I mean, you know, I've interviewed um, Clive Farrell, um, who um, is a huge champion of butterflies, and he, he made a fortune in the property industry and bought um, 100 acres of land in um Dorset I think yes Dorset and um has managed to basically turn his hundred acres into a into a uh, a nature reserve and has all of these amazing butterflies coming in that that wouldn't otherwise be there um so yes that would be great but it's not going to happen um because I'm a writer and <laughs> writers don't really earn very much money um so I've kind of shelved that really um, in terms of my career um, I think I would like to write more from the heart, I think uh, I've done a lot of practical gardening articles on what's declining and how to help it, but I think um, I would love to spend more time um, writing more more lyrical things maybe, um, the book I'm writing at the moment is a a personal narrative um, about me and my garden and and, and the wildlife living among Brighton, um, and it's really nice to just be, just to be able to write things, you know. That doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily about, you know. It doesn't have any practical advice. It doesn't have any solutions or anything. It's just, you know, someone's giving me a voice, really, which is really nice. Um, and also, I'd like to write novels. Um, I'd love to. I would love to realise that dream. Mm. It's quite a big dream. I think, you know, having the time to do that would be... I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Whether they get published or not, I don't know, but I'm going to do it. I've already started doing it, so watch this space
0: <laughs> I think you've got something you've written about bees that you wanted to share, and it would be great if you could also say a little bit around it about why you think bees are kind of... They've become pretty powerful in the public imagination and in the media as well.
1: They have which is just lovely Um, I have a a huge bee in my bonnet about um, the honeybee and the media bias on the honeybee Um, and I spend quite a lot of my time actually writing about bees that aren't the honeybee Um, and I've just written an article for the Telegraph about the hive in Kew Gardens and at the bottom I wrote it's really brilliant but you know it would be nice if we focused a little more attention on the other bees, because there's only one honeybee out of the 250 species of bee in Britain. Um, can we give, you know, some attention to those other 249-ish? Um, so yes, bees, bees are like a really powerful, um, they're a way in. They were a way in for me, and I think they're a way in for a lot of people. And um, if, you know, I don't really care how people get into wildlife but they need to get into wildlife and um, bees are so um, mobile you know, you can get bees anywhere you get bees in the centre of London you get bees in high-rise flats you get bees anywhere You know, if you have a windowsill and that's all you have you can have a connection with bees Um, and that's really brilliant and I think the fact that they're declining and the fact that they pollinate our food obviously there's a sort of uh, a human element in there that actually you know we really need to save these species, but also um, they are yeah they they're, they're all they they're, they're, they're everywhere, bees, even though they're declining, they're everywhere, they're a symbol of what's happening to the world, but they're also a symbol of hope and um, yes, that's why they're accessible. Yeah. They're accessible. Nightingale, not accessible. Bumblebee, accessible.
0: Yeah. They're little yellow canaries in the coal mine that's our countryside. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm. And, you know, but they come into our cities and they tell us, you know. So, yeah. That's bees.
0: Mm. And you wanted to...
1: Okay, I'm going to read this to you. Yeah, that would be great. <clears throat> it's about solitary bees. Basically, so I learned... Um, I found this bumblebee nest and I moved it and I learned a lot about bees and um, learning about bumblebees is really easy and and then the solitary bees which is really hard and still ten years later I I probably only know about five bumblebees. I wrote this four years ago, I don't think my bee knowledge has increased at all in those four years. Um, So here I am reading this feeling a bit like a failure. I spent the majority of last week trying to identify the solitary bees in my mum's front garden. For about three weeks each spring, there are clouds of them, all buzzing around, frantically looking for somewhere to nest, usually the lawn and Borders. I used to think there was just one species, but in the hours spent patiently watching them and photographing them last week, I noted at least three types. Or was it four? I've no idea. Unlike bumblebees, which live in nests, solitary bees lay eggs in individual cells. The female leaves a parcel of pollen and nectar for each grub to eat, and it emerges as an adult bee a year later, to mate and start the whole process again. But of the 240 odd UK species, I can confidently identify three. Tawny mining bee, hairy-footed flower bee, leafcutter bee. That's approximately 237 that exist in some vague and fathomable ether and could be outside my mum's front door. I'm ashamed. Bumblebees are much easier to identify. For many species, you just look at their bums. They have helpful common names like red-tailed, buff-tailed and white-tailed. You get your iron and learn to cut stripes, lemony or French hues, tongue length, French mustard hues, tongue length. And they're mostly big and bumbly, therefore easy to photograph, and so unutterably beautiful that learning to identify them is one of the happiest things you can do. Well, I think so. But solitary bees make my brain hurt. Some of them are beautiful, a few of them have common names, and many are easy to identify once you've got your eye in. But the mystery ones in my mum's garden are virtually identical. I uploaded a photograph of one to the wildlife identification site iSpot, and then impatiently asked the brains of Twitter to name it. The result? It could be one of three species, depending on the colour of its pollen baskets. Pollen baskets are the stiff hairs on the hind leg of females, which are used to gather pollen and, in my photograph, were concealed by the bees' wings. I wanted to cry. Perhaps it doesn't matter that I can't name the solitary bees living in my mum's front garden. Maybe it's enough that they just appear for three weeks every spring and then disappear back where they came from, as my mum puts it. But she doesn't know they're nested in the lawn and borders, that they spend pretty much their entire lives in the few metres outside her front door. They mate and lay eggs close to where they hatched and then die within a few weeks. All this and they pollinate her apple blossom. Surely it's worth knowing what they are. Like so much in life, it's easy to ignore what we can't see. In gardening terms, if we can't identify a habitat, then it's easy to destroy it. Such destruction, in this case, could be as simple as my mum mulching the borders or getting the drive done. I've often wondered what it is that makes my mum so perfect for these bees. None of the other front gardens in her road seem so popular. But then, there are so few left. Most have been paved over entirely or partially paved with a heavily landscaped, low-maintenance border. But my mum's is exactly how it was when the house was built in the 1930s. It has a small lawn and borders, with a few bare patches of earth, and it's south-facing. Bare, soft soil in a sunny location is prime solitary bee habitat, and the same site is used for generations, apparently. It's amazing to think that the ancestors of these identical-looking bees that make my brain hurt could have been using the same lawn and borders for 80 years. At the end of the week, I took another photo, which clearly showed black and silver pollen baskets. I posted it on Twitter. I got my answer. Andrina carantonica. It doesn't have a common name, but to me, it will always be the front garden bee. May the bees and the gardens never be paved over. That's it.
0: That's really nice. I think that really beautifully captures just in solitary bees alone, like this huge world that's happening in the tiny this tiny front huge garden. huge world. And you can, you know, you've conjured an entire article from that and you could conjure, you know, hours of... Mm. Exploration.
1: Mm. And my mum lived there for 18 years and she knew that they were there, but she never really engaged with them. And I think that's, I think that's what we need to do as, 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 as wildlife gardeners, as champions of wildlife on Twitter, on the radio, wherever we, we do this. We need to just say, look, you know, I know you know they're there, but just sit down and have a look at them. Just see what they're doing, because for all I know, actually she sold the house, (laughs) and um, and I left the new owners a copy of my book, and I printed out that article, and I just said look, I know you're probably going to get the drive done, but there's some bees living in the lawn, Um, (laughs) can you just spare a thought for them please, and you know, I haven't been back, um, and I don't really want to, Um, and it was probably an unusual welcome to their new home, uh but yeah you know we we have to we have to take note of these things we have to respect them and the fact that they'd probably been there for 80 years i mean before my mom before my mom's my house was built in the in the 1930s and before then it was farmland um you know who knows how long those bees have been nesting there and i think one thing that we humans forget, or most humans forget, is that we just kind of plough on regardless. And we, you know, we do, we do these things for ourselves. Everything's progress, everything's this, everything's that. I mean, you know, this whole bloody Brexit thing, um, you know, in the, last, in the last few weeks has all been about money. It's all been about the economy, economy immigration, human human problems. No-one really talked about the wildlife. No-one said, oh, what about the bees? What, what, uh, are we going to have neonicotinoids back now if we leave Brexit, if, you know, if Brexit goes ahead? Well, yeah, yeah, we probably will, yeah, because, you know, a lot of farmers will have voted for Brexit in order to, to have these, these pesticides back. And, you know, we, we don't think about wildlife, and we need to think about it, because if we don't, then it will be gone. And then when that's gone, you know, we're next, and I, I I actually don't really care about the future of the human race. I'm sorry, but I don't. Um, but I do care about, about the natural world. And I would like humans. And it's in humans' best interests to have respect for the natural world. Because without it, there is nothing. I certainly don't want to live in a world where there are no bees. Because it would be boring. <laughs> Even if I couldn't eat a tomato again, I'd be like... Fine, but oh, I would haven't you know it's it's our soul. We are killing our soul. We are killing what makes us human. You know, we evolved in the woodland, and our gardens are representative of, of the you know the woodland glade. It's where we belong, mm. and we ignore that at our peril, and the bees peril, and everything else is peril.
0: Have you got any um, kind of words of advice or wisdom, particularly for emerging or young? Sorry, not that you're not young yourself. (laughs) Um,
1: 35, babe.
0: (laughs) Like people who are interested in wildlife or wildlife writers or conservationists?
1: Um, Don't give up. I think something that I've really battled with over the years is confidence. Confidence to speak, confidence to write. Confidence to follow your heart. Um, And ultimately, you'll have good days and you'll have bad days. But never give up because it doesn't really care. It doesn't really matter what other people think. It doesn't really matter what other people are doing. What matters is what you're doing and what you think. And if you can't follow your heart, then what can you do? really and if you don't follow your heart and if your heart is, is geared towards nature writing uh, or you know, conservation or helping things then if you don't pursue that then you could not be making a difference to the wildlife and if that's what you really care about then you should just go ahead regardless That would be my advice. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because life is hard. Everything's hard. Everything's hard, you know. And sometimes I look at these politicians and I just think, how did you have the guts to just get there? How did you have the balls to just go out and say that and do that thing? And I think ultimately they're just really thick-skinned and they don't care. And, you know, conservationists tend to be a much nicer bunch of people and, and maybe more gentle but you know we have to just do it we have to just go out and do it because no one else is going to and so you know get on with it yeah and also you know if if you want to write something and then tweet me then I'll retweet it and read it and, and it'll probably be brilliant and, and, and you know we can all just live in this lovely bubble I think Twitter for me is just a really lovely bubble of, of other like minded people mm. um and you know we can all just share each other's work and all support each other and, um. And 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 together make the world a better place. And that sounds very airy fairy and or, you know whatever. But I really believe that. I really believe that it's just so lovely. On you know that that there is this body of people who who really care and want to make a difference and. Together we will.
0: Yeah, there is a lot of strength and confidence that can come from. Building those communities of friends and people who care about the same thing. Completely. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good place to to end. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. I could keep going for hours, I think. Have a cake. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) That was amazing. Really? Yeah. Wow. Thank you. That was really good. Thank you.